Matthew, the fifth chapter, looking at verses 27 through 32 today. We're in this little mini-series called True Righteousness, and it's part C today, and going to deal with the not-so-friendly subject of adultery. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this wonderful sermon that Jesus gave to his followers on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's a message telling Jesus' followers how they are to live with him as the king of their lives. That's the point of it. Jesus is speaking to you, telling you how to live with him as the king of your life. What does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? That's the Sermon on the Mount. How are Jesus' people supposed to live? <clears throat> it's not just a message for first century Christians. It applies to us the very same way. It began with the sort of attitudes that we as believers with Jesus as king of our lives, are to have. Does anybody remember what that section's called? It kind of sounds like the word attitudes. The attitudes, good job, all right. And then what's a way that we can kind of understand that? How can we break that word up and, and kind of get an understanding of what it means? Anybody know? Yeah, the be attitudes. These are attitudes like you should be. Yeah, it's a simple way to understand it. The Sermon on the Mount begins with that, and then, you know, goes into where Jesus said that as a Christian, you're to be salt and light of the earth. That you, Christian, sitting here today, you're to be the salt of the earth. You're to be the light of the earth. You're to have a preserving, purifying, thirst-creating effect on the world around you. And you're to be reflecting, as the moon does the light of the sun, the light of Christ into the community around you. He said, that's exciting. I, I love being, you know, called to do this by Jesus Christ. What a, what a meaning, what a purpose life. Then he goes on after that and describes, he starts to get into like the correct understanding of the Old Testament. You remember we talked about in Jesus' day, they thought he was down on the law of Moses, right? And so he says, I didn't come to be down on the law of Moses or destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law in every aspect. And we talked about last week how the scribes and the Pharisees, really the religious rulers of the day, they had some false interpretations of the law of Moses, which Jesus didn't always adhere to, so then they called him a blasphemer. But we talked about last week how the interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees, they actually relaxed the commandments of God, right? <clears throat> last week, we began this section where he's dealing with some of these false interpretations that they had of the law, and he picks out some hot-button issues, and Jesus then gives the correct interpretation of these laws. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had a way of interpreting God's law that lessened essentially what God was trying to say, right? They had this sort of interpretation where it was like man could keep this stuff, right? Like man could do this, the Old Testament. We know about the Ten Commandments, but they took 613 commandments out of the Old Testament. And then they had all the traditions of the rabbis on top of that. But what they taught was that man could do this, at least externally, right? And it's sort of lessening God's commands because God's commands don't just deal with the external, right? The law doesn't deal with just what's going on the outside. The law deals with what's going on in the attitudes of your heart. And that's what we saw last time. For instance, they taught the law of murder in this way. They said, hey, so long as you've never like, unjustly killed somebody, like done the action, then you're not guilty of murder. But what Jesus says is, 
you know, you've heard it said that, you know, you shall not murder. But I tell you that anybody that's angry with his brother, he's committed murder with them in his heart. So scribes and Pharisees' interpretation was, I'm righteous. I can check the box that says, thou shalt not murder. I've never done it. And you say, well, but you're not righteous. And they say, well, no, I am. I've never killed anybody. And they say, uh, then you would say, but have you been angry with your brother in your heart? Oh, hmm, yeah. Have you called him an idiot? Remember that? That's what he got into. Anybody that calls his brother an idiot or raka or says that he's worthless will be in judgment of, you know, in danger of the hellfire, right? And then so at that point, God's law interpreted correctly, every one of us in here is guilty, right? Every human on the planet, the law shall stop the mouth of the proud, the Bible says. Every person is guilty of breaking God's commands. The Pharisees didn't interpret it that way. And so Jesus brought the correct interpretation of the law of murder last time. And I don't know about you, but it was very convicting. And I've kind of been watching the things I've been thinking this last week. And I don't know if you've been applying these things as well. I certainly hope so. Um, But it was definitely convicting, right? When Jesus interprets the law correctly, there's one application for us. Repentance, right? Confession of sin, go to the Savior for forgiveness. That's the application of the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, Jesus wants us to live like this. However, we can't do it perfectly. So when we mess up, we go to Jesus for forgiveness. If we'll confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? That's the correct application. The incorrect application is, oh, 10 commandments? Yeah, I can do those. I mean, check it out. I do them pretty well. In fact, I do nine of them, but you do seven of them. So I've got a better seat in heaven than you do because, see, God grades on a curve, right? That's the incorrect interpretation of the law. The law convicts everybody. Now, if going through the Sermon on the Mount, if you're sitting in here and you haven't been convicted by anything yet, there's something wrong with the way that I am communicating or there is something wrong with the way that you are hearing. One or the other. Now, this time, we're going to look at two more laws Jesus is going to give us the correct interpretation of. And they're going to, it's going to deal with adultery as like kind of the main theme, but we're going to put the law of divorce in here as well because they kind of go together. They're tied together um, in the passage here today, and you'll see what I mean. They applied the law of adultery um, only to the act, again, and they twisted the law of divorce terribly to dilute its true meaning. So Jesus, um, you know, he'll get into this section too using his phrases that he did. You have heard it said, but I say to you, remember that from last time? You've heard the scribes and Pharisees teach it this way, but I'll tell you the correct interpretation. And that's where we're going. The main point is that we learn here today that God sees lust in the heart and remarriage after a divorce that took place in an unlawful way. He sees both of those things as, as adultery. Lust in the heart and remarriage after an unlawful divorce has taken place. God sees both of those as adultery. So that's what we're going to see in the point. That's the main point, really, of the message today. So let's go ahead, read the passage, picking it up at Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard it said, heard that it was said, to those of old you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable... For you, that one of your members perish, than for your whole body to be cast into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we want to bow before you, Lord, and we want to give your word the proper place that it deserves in our lives. And so, Father, that's our prayer today. Would you speak to us beyond the words of a man? Would your Holy Spirit be our teacher? Would you show us who you are in your word? Will you show us who we are? And will you show us the way to our Savior? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The outline is simple today. It's three parts. You already know that if you have an outline. Since God condemns adultery, we ought to understand its definition, application, and implication. Definition, you know, Jesus is going to give the true interpretation of the law of adultery. The application, he's going to deal with the sin of adultery, more specifically the sin that lies behind it, the sin of lust. And then number three, the implication, the implication of divorce and marrying somebody in a way that God does not prescribe. It's an implication of it is that it's adultery. So I know it's kind of, I really wrestled with trying to get words that are like shun at the end of it because they say that in pastor class, you're supposed to like, you know, make them sort of, you know, definition, application, implication. So for whatever it's worth, I hope that's helpful. It's a little wordy, but you'll see what I mean as we go through. So don't worry. All right. Number one, you've heard it said, To those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's that formula again. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is not at odds with the law of Moses. Jesus is at odds with the false interpretations of the scribes and Pharisees. So you could understand it like this. You have heard it said by the scribes and Pharisees in the synagogues and the streets But I say to you, here's the true intention of the law. He says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, that's, who knows what commandment that is? What number? Okay. It's number seven, right? Unless you're a Catholic and it's number six, right? Catholics in here, anybody? Okay. Comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. The dictionary defines adultery as this. Voluntarily, uh, voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. Now, the Bible would agree with that definition, Leviticus 18.20. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Same definition in the Bible. They heard the scribes and Pharisees teaching, you shall not commit adultery. Now, that's great. You should not commit the act of adultery. But like they did with the law of murder, they didn't interpret it as God intended. Only the act of adultery was prohibited by their interpretation. Verse 28, though, says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her. Now, this is not simply, you've got to be really careful when you read God's words because it doesn't say 
you know, the person that looks at a woman. It says, looks at a woman to lust after her. I've known many a young man that has been plagued by guilt in his life because he sees a woman. This isn't saying that you see a woman. Like, you're driving down the street and you see a woman jogging. Now, is that sinful? That's not sinful. You're just noticing the person is there. But what I've heard a lot of pastors say in there, I can't point you to a verse and chapter exactly, but I've heard a lot of people say this, and I think it lines up with the Bible and human experiences. When you see somebody with the first look, that's one thing. But when you look back, right, now what's going on in your heart? Why are you looking back? Now, of course, there's the you know, wily rascal out there that says, man, I'm just checking out because, you know, that's God's beautiful creation. And I was like, okay, careful, buddy. You know, because, you know, you could be committing a sin, you know, in doing that. This is the idea of looking at a person and fantasizing about being with them. Now, you say, well, women don't do that. We're not as visual. Well, this could be like looking at another woman's marriage and saying, oh, I love her husband. He's so spiritual. If I was with that guy, I would X, Y, Z, fill in the blank. That's the same sin. You're lusting in your heart for something that does not belong to you, right? And that's what he's getting at here. Now, I want to be clear that, of course, the act of adultery is worse by man's standards, right? There's definitely worse consequences for committing the act than there are just for having the thought. But make no mistake about it, God sees it as the same sin, right? Because the only thing that's holding you back from doing it, if it's going on in your heart, is just maybe you don't want to get caught, whatever else. But God is not a God that's far removed from your life. He's so interested in what's going on in your heart, you know? And so he, he looks at this as, you know, if you're fantasizing, if you're lusting, that's the same, uh, you know, sin uh, same thing as we talked about with anger and murder. Now, these are tough commands. I want to put this out there right away. Um, a lot of people are guilty, and the last thing you want to come away from here with today is shame. What you do want to come away with today is you, you want a new, fresh appreciation for the grace of Christ, and you want to go to your Savior, and you want to receive forgiveness from him. Right? That's where the Sermon on the Mount points all of us. Right? The word lust is an interesting word. Uh, we know the Bible's written in Koine Greek, translated into English, and the word translated lust is the word epithumeo, epithumeo. And it's a compound word. Um, epi, you ever heard of the epidural, epidermal layer on your skin? What does that mean? It's like on the top. Yeah. Epi means upon in the Greek. It's a preposition that means upon. It's also used when we're talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that he will come upon you. So we have epi, thumeo, and that's a desire. So it's over, desire. Easy, easy to understand that. Now, the Greek word, epithumeo, it just means a really strong over-desire, excuse me, and it doesn't necessarily mean for something bad. This can be for anything. You can over-desire good things. Food's a good thing. You can over-desire food, Right? That's the word here that's being used. It means an over-desire. <clears throat> now, talking about the sin of adultery here, maybe you're like, well, I'm single. I'm not married, so I can't commit the sin of adultery, so I can look at everybody all as I want. Well, by this same logic here, then that would be the sin of fornication, right? 
That would be the sin of fornication. If you're lusting out for people and you're single, it's adultery. If you're married, you're thinking about somebody else's wife rather than your own. But if you're single and you're thinking about having sex and you know, you're, you're visualizing it and you're lusting after it and you over-desire it, then you know, you're in the area, you're probably sinning at that point according to what Jesus is saying here. Now, it says that he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this interpretation of the seventh commandment goes further than the ones of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? Because there are plenty of people that look but don't touch. Hey, you can look but don't touch, man. You know, like that kind of attitude, right? Well, Jesus says that's, you know, not, that's not going to fly in the kingdom of God because God sees the heart, right? <clears throat> it is simple. The act is wrong. And therefore, the desire to do the act is wrong too. Now, I have to make a point here that's really important. There's a difference between having a thought and thinking about something, right? There's a difference. Thoughts come into your mind. The enemy can put thoughts into your mind. Your flesh, it seems like it coughs up thoughts into your mind, right? And all the TV that you've absorbed your whole life, you know, God forbid you know, that kids would see the stuff I saw when I was a kid. You know what I mean? And we've seen all these images. And we've watched, you know, CBS recently, right? You know what I mean? Which it used to be the good family channel. We've seen all this imagery. And so we have these thoughts. There's a difference between having the thought, confessing it, and putting your mind on something else. There's a difference between that and willfully continuing to ruminate or to think about something or to meditate on it. There's a difference, right? Having the thought is not sinful, Having the temptation is not sinful. You guys need to hear this, especially young people. This might be helpful for you. Having the temptation is not sinful. It's what you do with the temptation that determines whether you're going to sin or not. Jesus was tempted in all points, yet without sin, right? So if Jesus was tempted, yet without sin, that means that you can be tempted, yet without sin, right? It's important to understand that you'll destroy yourself if you think every thought that you have is sinful. I mean, good gravy, you need to get a brush and like stick it in one side of your ear and be like, I got to clean my brain out. Oh my gosh. You know, because you live in this sex crazed, you know, American 21st century digital boy world. And um, that's the reality of it. So there's a difference between thinking about something and then having a thought. Why is this a sin? Why is this thought a sin? Well, because sin begins in the heart. In order to commit adultery, you must first begin by allowing your mind to imagine and fantasize about the possibility. That's how it all starts. Adultery starts in the mind. Now, it's important to note before going on, uh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the heart, they don't only apply to sexual things. Lusting is the sin of coveting. Has anybody ever heard that word? Does anybody know what thou shalt not covet, what number of commandment that is? Ten. Yeah, it's the last one. Kind of wraps up all the other ones, and you're like, (laughs) I've got these other ones pretty well, but oh, this one. What coveting is, um, it's the sin of lust. It's the epithumeo. It's an over-desire. And that can be for a good thing or a bad thing. It doesn't have to be always for a bad thing. For instance, I might covet my neighbor's house. I might go and look at my neighbor's house and be like, man, he just painted it. It looks so good. He did the shutters. He's got the landscape all done. I hate my house. Ugh. And then you start to get this bad attitude about the things you have, and you're no longer grateful for the things God's given you in your life. That's because you're coveting your neighbor's house. That's what coveting is, right? You could, uh, you know, a woman could covet another woman's looks or clothing. You could say, 
you, you know, you could say, there's no sense in taking care of myself, and I'm down on myself and what God's given me. I don't have to be a good steward of this, because look at all these other women are so much more beautiful than I am, and so I'll just let myself, I'll just be a dump, because, you know, who cares, right? You know, because, and so you're coveting, you're coveting the way another person looks. That's covetousness, right? Um, a man covets somebody else's prominent position. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm just in systems, but if I was in systems analysis, then, you know, that's when I would be really working up the corporate ladder. I hate my life. I got a drink to go to sleep now. Coveting, right? Pastor may covet another pastor's church. I've been at a number of pastors' conference where the conversation is like, how many people are coming? How many people are coming? And you're like, you know, <laughs> is there anything more important than that? I think there is. A single person may covet the life of a married person. A married person may covet the life of a single person. A beginner in something may covet the experience of a master, right? It's not simply just to desire something. It's the over-desire, right? People will say, hey, we covet your prayers. They're not talking about anything sinful. They're saying we desire that you'd pray for us. The sin is when it becomes epithemeo, when it becomes lust, when it becomes an over-desire. How do you know that you're coveting, right? This is a good question. How do you know that you're coveting something? One sure way to tell is as you think about this thing, it causes you to be, like, ungrateful for the thing that you already have. You're not grateful for your house, for your car, for the way you look, for your intelligence, for your abilities. You're not grateful for these things anymore. You always wish you had something else. That's because you're coveting. It's also the sin of envy, right? Um, I'll tell you what, nothing fosters this more than social media, right? You young people know this. Social media, are these people post these pictures of, like, their best day ever, and they make it seem like that's their everyday life. And you sit and you look at this and you go, oh, my life stinks. I'll never be like that. That's because you're envying. You're envying somebody else's thing. And then you're becoming a person that's coveting what you don't have. And God calls that sinful, right? This is epithumeo, lusting after something that doesn't belong to you. Now, another way you can tell if you're sinning by coveting is your allegiance to the thoughts of this thing are coming before your relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Sometimes people covet something so much that they say, you know, my relationship with Christ has to take a back seat, right? I can't tell you in my short time, nine years as a pastor, how many times I've seen young men take a dive, and women, take a dive with their walk with Jesus because they coveted a romantic relationship. They so badly, they're so lonely, and they so couldn't deal with it. They so badly wanted to be with somebody that they were willing to date somebody that they were not unequally, they were unequally yoked with them. They're not a Christian. They get this whole idea that I'm going to flirt to convert, right? You ever heard that one? Don't flirt to convert. It means when you're going to go out and date somebody, if they're not a solid Christian that's further down the road than you are, you need to be very careful. You're not going to get some pagan and turn him into a Christian because you're so awesome. It's, it's making for problems, you know? But I've seen so many people, this is like the number, I'll give you the two things where people take a dive over in my time as a pastor. Opposite sex and work. Work. Oh, it's interesting. I just got born again and I just am filled with the spirit. I want to serve Jesus, but next week I got promoted at work and I have to work on Sunday. Oh, I know God's providing for me. He must want me to have everything, right? He, God's providing. He did this, right? So he'll be okay with me not being part of a fellowship, 
are you sure? You sure it's not a test to see where your heart's at? The two biggest things that I've ever seen people take a dive for, the opposite sex and money and work. Those two things. Now, so that's how you know that if you're coveting, those are just two ways. Um, you're discontent with your life, right? You're not content with what God has given you or not given you. And the allegiance to the thoughts of this thing are superseding your allegiance to Jesus Christ. Those are two things that show that your heart's not in a good place. And most likely, you're not experiencing the joy of the Lord either. And it's, so it's a bad thing, right? <clears throat> in fact, you know, if you read the Old Testament, it's kind of interesting. God calls Israel adulterers so many times, doesn't he? He calls them harlots. Why? Because their hearts were, they, Israel, you know, God did all this miracle stuff, took them out of Egypt, did all this, you know, the Red Sea, pillar, you know, a fire, cloud by day, all the miracles, the manna, the sandals that didn't wear out the whole time in the desert, you know what I'm saying? And uh, the quail, remember they asked for quail until it was coming out of their nose, and God provided, the water came from the rock not once but twice, right? What happened? Oh, man, we want to go back to Egypt. Oh, it was so good back there. They had a full menu back there. Here we only have the three items, you know. And God called them adulterers. He says, you know what? I have, you're like my bride. I love you with this kind of love that gets jealous when your heart gets fixated on the way the world does things. And he sees that as idolatry. He sees that as harlotry. He sees that as adultery when we want to be more like the world around us than we do like Christ. It's a terrible sin. You read the book of Hosea, it's the most vivid illustration that you'll ever come across uh, for what God means when he calls his people adulterers. So I think when Jesus is talking about adultery here, it's going to a deeper meaning than, you know, than just, the deepest meaning here is the lust in the heart, whether it's after the opposite sex, whether it's after money, whether it's after career, respect, prominence, you know, good things even, family, maybe you're lusting so much over a family and you're single and you don't have anybody and you're miserable because you're single. That's coveting. It goes deeper than just, you know, Adultery in a marriage, right? We're in a dangerous world today. These advertisers have done their homework when it comes to tempting people, you know, to buy what they're selling, but they're only partly to blame. Advertisers can sell all this stuff, but it doesn't sell unless you're buying it. And the reason you're buying it is because it's peaking your flesh, right? And we're in a world full of envy and greed and perversion and sin. And so, what do we do? Well, that brings us to our next point. Number two, here's some application. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. And then that second illustration with the hand, it's the same illustration. He's just changing it a little bit with the hand. Now, this is not to be taken literally. I'll tell you, a few years ago, I was on face, MySpace. You guys remember that? I was on MySpace and I uh, met, met these friends in Africa, and um, this one dude, you know, the Christian guys, and we were fellowshipping online, I thought, and um, this one dude was just nuts. He was, like, critiquing everything I was posting and stuff and super legal about his relationship with the Lord. Well, his friend, posed, he messages me privately, and he says, you got to watch out for this guy. You know, he's, he castrated himself based on this passage, you know, uh, you know, if, if your hand causes you to sin, well, if you're, you know, you know, your male organ, you know, if that's the problem in your life, cut it off. And he did. 
And he's not the first person. I've actually researched this a little bit, and a lot of people have plucked out their eyes, cut off their hands, and castrated themselves. It's, it's, so you have to understand Jesus is using what's called hyperbole here. He's using language to describe. Now, but don't let that diminish the seriousness of what he's saying. How do we know he's using hyperbole? Well, if you cut your right eye out, don't you have your left eye? You could still sin with that one, couldn't you? But if you didn't have any eyes, I'll tell you what, you could still sin. I know a pastor and his, one of his best friends is blind, and he says, the hardest sin that I deal with is lust. Well, how can that be without any eyes? Because lust is in the heart, right? Same thing with the hand. You could have, you know, neither hands, and you could still covet somebody else's stuff, although your hand can't go over and steal it, you know? So what he's saying here is something drastic has to be done. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you value your relationship with Christ and you want to follow and please Jesus, then something drastic has to be done about the sin in our lives. You know when he says right hand? In that culture, in that day and age, the right was like the better one. It was the stronger one. Like if you lost, most people write with their right hand. If you lost your right hand, that's, that's a great cost. So Jesus is saying, take something of great cost and do something drastic, right? He's not only saying do something drastic, he's saying do something violent, you know, like abrupt, like get rid of, you know, the source of this temptation in your life, right? Now, of course it doesn't address the heart, but you have to think about this. If you have eyes and hands and these physical senses that live in this physical world, you have these things that, you you know, temptation can come in through these things, right? So Jesus is telling us that we need to deal with this drastically. You know, it's a big responsibility having eyes. It's a big responsibility having ears. My dad, you know, (coughs) he passed away a few years ago, and I didn't have the greatest relationship with him. But when I did have a great relationship with him, he taught me like two things. Uh, One was walk as if upon rice paper. Apparently that was from some show named Kung Fu. I don't know. Has anybody watched that? Kung Fu. He told me to walk as if upon rice paper because I was loud. I was a teenager, like, and he goes, oh, I'll be like a ninja and walk as if upon rice. So I'd be around the house like, (laughs) right? And then uh, the other thing, well, he told me more than two things. Um, Another one was at the end of the day, you need to be able to look yourself in the mirror. That's pretty good good advice. Um, Another one, though, that always stood out was he told me that he pictured his eyes and his ears, he pictured like a little guard shack in front of them, monitoring everything that would come in. To And he wasn't a Christian, but it was just, you know, common sense kind of, right? Like, it's your heart is connected to your eyes. And the Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence, right? But how do you do that? You set a watch over your eyes and over your ears, and you become very selective about what you put into your brain, Right? Because just like in the computer programming world, you program a bunch of garbage code, garbage in, garbage out, right? If you put junk in your system, you know, you're, you're marring the temple, right? Uh, you put a bunch, you know, somebody's like, I got an anger problem. Well, what do you do? Well, I watch UFC all the time. <laughs> what? I mean, I'm not saying UFC is evil, nothing like that. I'm not saying, but if you're putting images of people pummeling people to death almost, in your mind, oh, it's just sport, bro. Well, there's a part of your brain that doesn't associate whether it's just sport or not. It only sees the image of violence. That's all it sees. It's like a primal part of us, right? And 
you're feeding it. And the Bible says God will not be mocked. That which a man sows, he will what? Reap, right? So you're putting this stuff in, you're programming it, and you wonder why you have, still have an anger problem. You're wondering why you have a lust problem, you know, because you're looking at images, you know, of, you know, things that you don't have that you want. I mean, dude, I, okay, I'm going to just move on here because I can talk about this all day. It's more profitable for you to be willing to cut something off in your life for the sake of your walk with Christ than it is to live a life separate from Christ. And that's what he's getting at uh, mainly there. For the sake of your walk with Christ, are you willing to drastically cut off things in your life that are tempting you and leading you to sin? That's the question today. Are you willing, for the sake of your walk with Christ, are you willing to allow things to be cut off in your life? That's a question for all of us to think about. If you're going to have a good walk with Jesus, you need to be willing to cut off anything in your life that gets in the way of it. Do you deal with sin drastically in your life abruptly and seriously? Many Christians, this... Many Christians don't make it very far because they get born again, and, but they're not willing. You know, it's like they, they get sprung out of Egypt, to use an Old Testament illustration, but they instantly want to go back to Egypt. Like, they get up to the Red Sea, right? And here's the Red Sea. You're standing at the Red Sea, and here come all the enemies out of your past life, right? All the fornication, the sin, the drugs, the whatever it is. Here come all your enemies, and you're at this crossroads and you say, I can't go forward. And behind me is this. What do I do? And God says, I'm going to do something that's going to swallow up all your past. But you have to have enough faith to follow Moses and walk forward, right? But people are stuck at the Red Sea. A lot of people, they're like, I, I don't know. I want Egypt. I'd rather make peace with my enemies, I'd rather make peace with my flesh, with my sin. I'd rather try to jive it together, you know, and have this sort of walk with Jesus where it's like Sunday, I'm all about it. But the rest of the week, you know, I'm still mixing in the Canaanites and the Amorites and the, you know, Perizzites and all the otherites and the fleshites. They'd rather have that sort of life. They have too much Jesus in them to be comfortable in the world and too much of the world to be comfortable in church. And they want that. And this is where Christians take a dive all the time because they're not willing to let God remove the things from their life that have to go. Maybe that's right where you're at today. Maybe you're like, I'm struggling in my walk with the Lord. Is it because Jesus Christ is trying to remove something from your life and you know it in your conscience, but you're refusing to let it go? Because it could be. God has something so much better for you than to be standing on, the, on this side of the Red Sea and even on this side of the Jordan. He wants you to go into full salvation, right? To have victory over your enemies, to have victory over the flesh, to walk by the Spirit. Bottom line is today, as Jesus' follower, you must get rid of any relationship, practice, form of entertainment, any activity, any hobby, anything that's leading you to sin. That's Jesus' point here. I'm not being a legalist. I'm not saying, you know, you have to do these things to get, you know, into heaven. I'm saying, are these things jeopardizing your desire to even go to heaven? Right? I mean, Think about that. There's a lot of people that want to go to heaven, but actually don't want Jesus. They don't want anything to do with what goes on in heaven. They just want what goes on on earth. 
we need to be willing, like Jesus says, to cut it off, to allow it to be cut off, whatever that might be. And that's pretty painful. I remember a girl one time that I knew that was struggling with drugs. And this is a great trust, testimony to the grace of the Lord, right? And she came to a point where her life was unmanageable and all that other language that they use in that one group. Um, and then she gave her life to the Lord. And like a couple of days after, she's on her phone and drops it in the toilet on accident, you know? And I'll tell you what, that phone filled with all those phone numbers of all those people that knew all about her in that old life, it was all gone, you know? And I, she's like, God, what am I going to do? What am I going to I'm like, dude, that is God. Like, that's the Red Sea. It's the red toilet, man. I mean, you know, like, come on. You know, God's helping you, you know, take it for what? And she walked fine with the Lord for a couple of years and all of a sudden started getting those phone numbers again and back in the same exact position, you know, not willing to let it be cut off. You know, I, I'm not here to tell you, God says cut it off. I'm here to tell you, you are missing out on something glorious by trying to hold on to your past and adapt a little bit of Jesus in your life at the same time. You're missing out on what Jesus calls the abundant life. You're missing out on joy and contentment and fullness and purpose and meaning and optimism and hope, you know, and all those good things I can make a list of. You're missing out on that. The Christians that are walking around doing cartwheels like, I love Jesus. It's, there's a difference between the other ones. Oh, Christianity is so hard. It's, so, it's hard because you're trying to hang on, right? Maybe your phone needs to go in the toilet. God has something better for you, though, so just I hope you remember that, if you remember anything else, that God has something way better for you than you probably know. It just keeps getting better. I talked to a person the other day that just had their, like, 65th birthday, and I was like, happy birthday. You know, life's just getting better all the time, isn't it? You know, and, and this person doesn't know Jesus, so they said, you know, I don't know about that. But I'll tell you what, when you're following the Savior, when you're in close koinonia with Jesus Christ, it just keeps getting better. It just keeps getting better all the time, right? So we defined adultery, then zeroed in on the fact that lust in the heart is the sin that leads to adultery. We talked about how to deal with it. Then Jesus told us to deal with it drastically, abruptly, and seriously. Now, finally, number three, uh, divorce and adultery. Here's an implication. Um, verse 32 ends with the word adultery. He says, if anybody divorces their wife, um, or marries a woman that's been divorced, you commit adultery. Now, here's the reason in a nutshell, okay? God joined man and woman together. God created marriage. God created man and woman. God created marriage for man and woman. It's his design. It's his invention. And he says, what God joins together, let not man, what? Separate, right? So God looks at a marriage. He created it. He put it together. And so, therefore, if God invented marriage, if God put it together, then God can also set the parameters for what makes a legal divorce. And as far as I can tell, there are two things in the Bible that say that divorce is legitimately recognized by God. One is sexual immorality. Does anybody know what the other was? It's in the book of 1 Corinthians. Yeah, and they bolt. Yeah, that's what, apparently when you read that, that's, you know. Now, the whole conversation of, well, my husband's abusive or my wife's abusive, that's a different conversation for a different time. Um, but there are two reasons that God will recognize a divorce, and it, he says it right here, one of them, sexual immorality. The other one is your unbelieving spouse leaves you because of your Christianity. Now, so what does it mean that you cause her to cause, commit adultery if you divorce her? Well, 
the thing is, is God doesn't recognize the divorce. Man may recognize it, but God doesn't. Now, it's the same thing for certain marriages going on in America in 2021. Man may recognize them, but God doesn't. That's why I don't sweat it. You know, people want to get you all worked up about other lifestyles, getting married and all that stuff. It's not even my concern whatsoever because God doesn't recognize it. Fine with me, right? Not my battle. Don't even care about it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when it comes to Christians, God doesn't recognize that divorce. And so say you marry somebody that's coming out of a marriage that God doesn't recognize, you're committing adultery with that person. That's how God sees it. God brought that marriage together. It was broken without his um, okay. And so therefore, everything else is adultery happening after that. Now, grace and mercy, God forgives. There are a lot of people that have made some terrible mistakes in their life and had bad things done to them. And God's a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration if you've been divorced for some reason that doesn't fall in the Bible. I don't want you to be condemned. I want you to seek the Lord, and I want you to um, enjoy his grace and mercy. And, you know, by all means, you know, God wants people to be um, right with him. You know, and we do that through confession. We do that through um, seeking him uh, for forgiveness of our sins, and he'll restore people. I know people, he's restored them. They've been divorced for bad reasons, and, and I just want you to know that just because man has a hard heart and man sins, you never throw out God's standard of what truth is, ever. Now, none of us can hold to the truth perfectly, and that's not an excuse to not try. But you don't throw out the standard just because humans don't live up to it. We proclaim the standards that God puts out there because it's about him. It's not about us, right? So it's kind of interesting because in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought in the law of divorce where he says, you've heard it said, if a man's going to divorce, let him give his wife a certificate of divorce. There were two schools of thought in this day. There were two rabbis that were essentially affecting Jewish thought. One was Shammai, and the other one was Hillel. Now, Shammai was in alignment with kind of what Jesus says here. He was very conservative. You can only get divorced for sexual immorality. Hillel, however, had a different interpretation, a more popular interpretation, and he said you could essentially divorce your wife for anything. Um, because in Deuteronomy, what chapter is it again? I'm sorry. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, it goes on. So Moses said if you're married and you find that there's uncleanness in your wife, you can give her a certificate of divorce and go. There weren't a lot for man and woman reversal there, you know, in the Old Testament days, so be gracious, you know, Jesus there's no male or female and all this. What that meant, though, so that verse in Deuteronomy, if, if you found some uncleanness in her. Now, Rabbi Shammai <laughs> interpreted uncleanness to mean sexual uncleanness. Hillel interpreted uncleanness as literally, truthfully, you could have burnt his breakfast. You could have put too much salt and pepper on his eggs. And that's it. Crazy, right? And you think, wow, that's a low standard for divorce. Is it lower than America's standard for divorce? Not at all. America, you can just fall out of love with somebody. It was never love in the first place if you could fall out of it because it's a verb, it's an action. You can't fall out of love. You can only choose to love somebody according to the Bible, right? 
But people say, I fell out of love with him. I divorced. I say, well, you sound like a follower of Rabbi Hillel. <laughs> so divorce and adultery. The reason God's so serious about marriage, and we'll kind of wrap up with this, is um, has anybody ever read Ephesians chapter 5? Has read it? Nobody in here has read Ephesians chapter 5. Oh, you have, yeah? Okay, wow. You say, geez, oh, Pete, I'm talking too much. I need to give you a Bible. Like, Go back there and read the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 5, the whole chapter is about submission uh, to one another. And at the end of it, it talks about marriage. And then Paul says something that just is fascinating. He says, um, I tell you, this talk about marriage, man and woman, um, it's a mystery because what it is, it's a reflection of the love of Christ for his bride, which is the church, right? So he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ did, and he gave himself for her. You remember that statement? If you're a husband in here today, that's one of the, you know, you should... That's one of the greatest commands to you as a husband is to love your wife as Christ loved the church, as he gave himself for her. He cherished her. He washes her in the word. And wives are to submit and to um, respect their husbands, right? And this is a picture of Christ in the church. Christ sacrificially gives himself for the church in a non-legalistic way. He comes and he makes himself vulnerable. He puts himself out there fully and does everything for her. And then it is her place then to respond to that love willingly and to come to him and be submissive to his love. And it's a picture of the church. Now, when God has this metaphor going through life, you know, this typography we would call it, I guess, or this typology, he gets really upset when people screw it up, right? Remember why Moses couldn't get into the promised land? You're supposed to speak to the rock instead of striking the rock. He screws up the whole typology of it. Well, when you get divorced, you screw up the typology of the bride of Christ and Christ, in a sense, too. You're, you're, you know, it's, it's the meaning of marriage is to teach us to, to reflect what it looks like for the bride of Christ to be married to Christ, right? It's a picture of that. That's why marriage is just the most glorious relationship that a person can have. Nowhere in the Bible says that you become one flesh with your children, Right? That's why in a marriage, the marriage always comes before the children because if the marriage is rocky, it doesn't matter. You know, the whole house is screwed up if the marriage isn't right. And when the marriage isn't right and the family isn't right, society falls apart. Right? And that's what destroyed the Roman Empire. And that's what's destroying the American Empire right? is this determination to destroy the family. You see, Jesus in this message, he talks about two ways to commit adultery. The lustful thoughts in the mind, that could be about anything. And also, remarrying after an unlawful divorce. It all comes down to coveting and lusting in the heart. And that's really the main thing here today. Jesus says we need to deal with our temptations by taking drastic measures. We need to deal drastically with the lusts of the heart by asking Jesus to change our desires. And you know if you've walked with the Lord, he changes your desires. He will deal with the lusts of your heart. You say, man, I'm plagued with this. I'm young. I've got hormones going. Listen, God knows. You just keep praying and you keep seeking his grace and you understand that there's no condemnation for anybody in Christ Jesus. There's only love and forgiveness. And you come to him and you ask him for forgiveness and you ask him to purify your heart, to purify your eyes, to purify your hands. 
and he loves you, and he wants to care for you in this. We must be willing, though, to cut off what is a stumbling block in our lives, whatever causes us to stumble when it comes to holy and pure living. We should be willing to let that go. Remember, a guy said to a person, (laughs) he's witnessing, and he says, hey, you know, do you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You know, and he says, can I still smoke marijuana? (laughs) Really? That's what it's hinging on? I mean, you'd be willing to give up eternity with a God that loves you, a present life of being filled with the Holy Spirit and having a life full of purpose, meaning, and abundance for something like that. (laughs) We should be willing to let everything go in our lives that would get in the way of the best relationship that we could ever have. So, In conclusion, living with hearts full of lust and desires for worldly things, it's a miserable way to live. You miss out on joy, contentment, and gratitude. Jesus offers forgiveness for that here today. And, man, I don't know about you, but I get convicted by this. Um, I've lusted after wanting to move back to California a lot of times to the point to where it made me unhappy here. It's lust. It's sin. Take it to God. Forgive me, God. Forgive me for grumbling and murmuring and complaining about your sovereignty. Jesus offers forgiveness. He offers a life full of new ambitions, contentment, purpose, meaning beyond self-desires. And you can have this today by turning to him, by confessing, asking for forgiveness and cleansing. And he'll give it to you now. Doesn't Jesus shine the light on what's going on in our hearts? Maybe through this study you're realizing that you're not quite right with God, and um, welcome to the club. Today as we go to the Lord's table, um, Corey, could I get you to hand out the elements? And Jeff, would you be so gracious as to help him? Um, Today as we go to the Lord's table, if this is a time where you need to confess some things to the Lord, this is a great time to do it. Some people think communion, like I can't go and take communion because my heart's full of sin. Well, confess the sin. Just, just confess it. Deal with it now. There's no sense to carry this stuff out of here and carry this baggage. Confess it now to him. Get right now with him, right? And so we're going to partake in the Lord's table together. And may this be a time of cleansing and a time of healing. Father, we do thank you for your word here today, and we thank you for the searchlight of the scriptures, and we thank you, Lord, that we have a Savior that offers forgiveness, that has open arms, that ever lives to intercede for us. We thank you, Father, for that great truth in Romans chapter 8, 1, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, Lord. And as we partake today, we want to remember that we're free from that condemnation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time and for speaking to us. In Jesus' name, amen.